Chapter Seventeen of Marjorie Dean, High School Freshman by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Seventeen Marjorie Meets with a Loss. By eight o'clock the following night, twenty-eight invitations to Marjorie Dean's Thanksgiving party were on their way. No one of the invitations ran the risk of being declined. Marjorie had invited only those boys and girls of her acquaintance who were quite likely to come, and when the momentous evening arrived they put in twenty-eight joyful appearances and enjoyed the dean's hospitality to the full but to constance who wore her beautiful blue gown and went to the party under the protection of her father whose sombre eyes gleamed with a strange new happiness and old john rowland whose usually vacant expression had changed to one of inordinate pride it was indeed a night to be remembered by the three charlie was to remain at home in the care of a kindly neighbour the long living-room had been stripped of everything save the piano and the polished hardwood floor was ideal to dance on Uncle John had received careful instructions beforehand from both Mr. Stevens and Constance as to his behaviour, and with a sudden flash of reason in his faded eyes had gravely promised to be good. He had kept his word too, and from his station beside the piano he had played like one inspired from the moment his violin sang the first magic strains of the Blue Danube until it crooned softly the home sweet home waltz. The dancers were wholly appreciative of the orchestra, as their coaxing applause for more music after every number testified, and before the evening was over several boys and girls had asked Marjorie if those dandy musicians would play for anyone who wanted them. Mother's giving a tea next week, and I'm going to tell her about these men, the crane had informed Marjorie. Hal and I are going to give a party before long, and we'll have them too, Jerry had promised. Lawrence Armitage, who had managed to be found near Constance the greater part of the evening, insisted on being introduced to her father, and during supper, which was served at small tables in the dining room, he had sat at the same table with the two players and constance and kept up an animated and interested discussion on music with mr stevens but the crowning moment of the evening had been when after supper the guests had gathered in the living-room to do stunts and constance had sung tosti's good-bye and thy blue eyes her exquisite voice coming as a bewildering surprise to the assembled young people how they had crowded around her afterward how glad marjorie had been at the success of her plan and how mr stevens's eyes had shone to hear his daughter praised by her classmates in less than a week afterward constance rose from obscurity to semi-popularity the story of her singing was noised about through school until it reached even the ears of the girls who had despised her for her poverty 
Muriel and Susan had looked absolute amazement when a talkative freshman told the news as she received it from a girl who had attended the party. Mignon, however, was secretly furious at the, to her, unbelievable report that beggarly Stephen's girl could actually sing. She had never forgiven Constance for refusing to dishonourably assist her in an algebra test, and after her unsuccessful attempt to fasten the disappearance of her bracelet upon Constance, she had disliked her with that fierce hatred which the transgressor so often feels for the one he or she has wronged. Next to Constance in Mignon's black book came Marjorie, who had caused her to lose her proud position of centre on the team and in miss merton and marcia arnold she had two staunch adherents just why miss merton disliked marjorie was hard to say perhaps she took violent exception to the girl's gay gracious manner and love of life the early years of which she was living so abundantly at any rate she never lost an opportunity to harass or annoy the pretty freshman and it was only by keeping up an eternal vigilance that Marjorie managed to escape constant nagging reproof. Last of all, Marcia Arnold had a grievance against Marjorie. She was no longer manager of the freshman team. A disagreeable ten minutes with Miss Archer after the freshman team had been disbanded on that dreadful day had been sufficient to deprive her of her office and arouse her resentment against Marjorie to a fever pitch. There were still a number of girls in the freshman class who clung to Muriel and Mignon, but they were in the minority. At least two-thirds of nineteen-something had made friendly overtures not only to Marjorie but to Constance as well, and as the short December days slipped by, Marjorie began to experience a contentment and peace in her school that she had not felt since leaving dear old Franklin High. "'Everything's going beautifully, Captain,' she declared gaily to her mother in answer to the latter's question, as she flashed into the living room one sunny winter afternoon, with dancing eyes and pink cheeks. "'It couldn't be better,' I like almost everyone in school. Constance's father has more playing than he can do. You bought me that darling collar and cuff set yesterday. I've a long letter from Mary. I've studied all my lessons for today. And, oh, yes, we're going to have creamed chicken and lemon meringue pie for dinner. Isn't that enough to make me happy for one day at least? What a jumble of happiness, laughed her mother. "'Isn't it, though? And now Christmas is almost here. "'That's another perfectly gigantic happiness,' was Marjorie's extravagant comment. "'I love Christmas. That reminds me, Mother, you said you would help me play Santa Claus to little Charlie. "'I don't believe he has ever spent a really jolly Christmas. "'Of course Mr. Stevens and Constance will give him things.' but he needs a whole lot more presents besides. He climbed into my lap and told me all about what he wanted when I was over there yesterday. I promised to speak to Santa Claus about it. Charlie isn't going to hang up his stocking. 
he's going to leave a funny little wagon that he drags around for Santa Claus. He told me very solemnly that he knew Santa Claus couldn't fill it, for Connie had said that he never had enough presents to go around. But she was sure he would have a few left when he reached Charlie. So Constance and I are going to decorate the wagon with evergreen and hang strings of popcorn on it and fill it full of presents after he goes to bed. He has promised to go very early Christmas Eve. Mr. Rowland has a little violin he is going to give him, and Mr. Stevens has a cunning chair for him. He has never had a chair of his own. Constance has some picture books and toys, and I'm going to buy some too. I saved some money from my allowance this month on purpose for this. Marjorie's face glowed with generous enthusiasm as she talked. I am going shopping day after tomorrow, said Mrs. Dean, and as long as it is Saturday, you had better go with me. Oh, splendid, cried Marjorie, dancing up and down on her tiptoes. Things are getting interestinger and interestinger. Regardless of English, slyly supplemented her mother as Marjorie danced out of the room to answer the postman's ring. Here are two letters for you, Captain, but not even a postcard for me. I'd love to have a letter from Mary, but I haven't answered her last one yet. I'll write to her tomorrow and send her presents too, with special orders not to open until Christmas. The next morning Marjorie hurried off to school early in hopes of seeing Constance before the morning session began. Her friend entered the study hall just as the first bell rang, however, and Marjorie had only time for a word or two in the corridor as they filed off to their respective classes. I'll see her in French class, thought Marjorie. I'll ask Professor Fontaine to let me sit with her. But when she reached the French room and the class gathered, Constance was not among them, nor did she enter the room later. Wondering what had happened, Marjorie reluctantly turned her attention to the advanced lesson. "'We will read this little poem together,' directed Professor Fontaine amiably. "'But first I shall read it to you. It is called Le Papillon, which means the butterfly.' Unconsciously Marjorie's hand strayed to the open neck of her blouse. Then she dropped her hand in dismay. Her butterfly, her pretty talisman, where was it? She remembered wearing it to school that morning, or thought she remembered. Oh yes, she now recalled that she had pinned it to her coat lapel. It had always shone so bravely against the soft blue broadcloth. She longed to rush downstairs to her locker before reporting in the study hall for dismissal, but remembering how sourly Miss Merton had looked at her only that morning, she decided to possess her soul in patience until the session was dismissed. Once out of the study hall, she dashed downstairs at full speed and hastily opened her locker. As she seized her coat, she noted vaguely that Constance's hat and coat were missing but her mind was centred on her pin. Then an exclamation of grief and dismay escaped her. The lapel was bare of ornament. Her butterfly was gone. 
"'I wonder if I really did leave it at home,' was her distracted thought as she climbed the basement stairs with a heavy heart after having thoroughly examined the locker. But a close search of her room that noon revealed no trace of the missing pin. Hot tears gathered in her eyes, but she brushed them away, muttering, "'I won't cry. It isn't lost. It can't be.' "'Oh, my pretty talisman!' She choked back a sob. "'I shan't tell Mother unless it is really hopeless. It won't do any good, and she'll feel sorry because I do. It is my own fault. I should have seen that my butterfly was securely fastened.' On the way home from the school that afternoon, Marjorie reported the loss of her pin to Irma, Jerry and Constance, who had returned for the afternoon session. "'What a shame,' sympathised Jerry. "'It was such a beauty. I'm so sorry you lost it,' condoled Irma. "'So am I,' echoed Constance. "'I don't remember it. I'm not very observing about jewellery but I'm dreadfully sorry just the same. It was, began Marjorie, but a joyful whistle far up the street and the faint ring of running feet put a sudden end to her description. Lawrence Armitage, Hal Macy and the Crane had espied the girls from afar and come with winged feet to join them. Their evident pleasure in the girls' society coupled with the indescribably funny antics of the crane, who had apparently appointed himself an amusement committee of one, drove away Marjorie's distress over her loss for the time being, and it was not until later that she remembered that she had not described the butterfly pin to Constance. End of chapter 17 Recording by Ashley Jane